0: Hello, and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. I'm co-host of the channel, along with Robert Talese, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Together, we bring you conversations about with philosophers about their new books, drawing from a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Paul C. Taylor, Associate Professor of Philosophy and African American Studies, and an Associate Dean for Undergraduate Studies at Penn State University. We're talking about his new book, Black is Beautiful, a Philosophy of Black Aesthetics, which is just out from Wiley Blackwell. Why is it controversial to cast light-skinned actress Zoe Saldana as the lead character in a film about the performer Nina Simone? How should we understand the coexisting desire and revulsion of the black body that traces its roots to Thomas Jefferson's long-standing relationship with the slave selling Hemings, and extends to contemporary attitudes towards black hair? In Black is Beautiful, Taylor examines primary themes in racialism from the perspective of aesthetic culture. He considers such issues as black invisibility, expressive culture and politics, and the problem of authenticity and cultural appropriation. He also lays the foundation for analytic philosophical tools to be brought more widely to bear on scholarly discussion of issues related to race and racialism. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Paul C. Taylor. Are you there?
1: I am here. Hello.
0: Hi. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy.
1: Thank you so very much. It's a pleasure to be here with you.
0: Uh, I appreciate your taking the time uh, to discuss your new book, Black is Beautiful: A Philosophy of Black Aesthetics, which is just out from wiley blackwell um, and you know as a, as an overall introduction to the book, um, you know you 're doing uh, two two parallel things one is one is kind of bridging a gap between uh, anglo american or or analytic philosophy. Uh, and uh, the categories and concepts and discussion of race and racialism um, that has occurred outside of that tradition, so in, in in critical theory and so forth, so one of the goals of the book is to is to kind of help bridge that gap to allow for more conversation and more input from analytic philosophers into. Um, into the topics that the book also discusses and then of course there is the direct discussion of various um, issues within black, black aesthetics um, and we'll get to all of those um, shortly. So let me to begin let me just um, ask about uh, your background. I mean how did you could you say a bit about um, your own philosophical background and then how you came to write this particular book?
1: Sure I'd be happy to. Um So I did my undergraduate work at a small liberal arts college in Atlanta, Georgia, called Morehouse College. Morehouse is an historically black college. And um, we could talk some about that later. Maybe Uh, uh, anyone who's paid attention to the higher ed sector in recent years know that liberal arts colleges are facing some rather profound challenges and historically black colleges and minority serving institutions in general are are facing their own challenges. So uh but this was at a moment before those challenges had really taken root. Um and so Morehouse was in a certain way thriving and this was at the uh height in certain well actually at the tail end of the uh divestment movement in um Around the world, where people were concerned with the anti-apartheid struggle in South Africa. So this is quite some time ago nowadays, and uh, it was also at the height of a certain kind of resurgent cultural nationalism in, Af- in African American communities. So this is the time at which people were wearing the Malcolm X caps, and Spike Lee's Malcolm X movie had come out and made these popular, and and so this was a very distinctive moment at at, at a place like Morehouse, and it struck me then that we were inhabiting this moment in a way that could easily. Uh, descend into or lapse into a kind of uncritical acceptance of any number of very peculiar views, uh, many of them opposed to each other. And I thought this was unfortunate, and I thought, wouldn't it be nice if there were some cultural space where people could sort of think harder about how to think more clearly about this stuff? And lo and behold, I stumble into a philosophy class, mm-hmm. and I thought, wow, well, this is wonderful. This is what we need to answer these questions. Turns out philosophy didn't care about the questions I was interested in, at least not the kind of philosophy I was taught to uh, study. And so I've I spent a good bit of time ever since then trying to figure out how to get philosophy to do the work that I thought philosophy was going to help me do. Uh, so that's sort of a broad background and more sort of uh, disciplinary discipline specific terms. Uh, my great education at Morehouse was very broad. Uh, it was more sort of introduction to humanistic study and broadly philosophical domains. Mm-hmm. And from there I went to Rutgers for graduate school where I was uh, uh, inducted into the the traditions and rituals of hardcore analytic philosophy, and I learned what philosophy of mind was and that kind of business. <laughs> and uh, perversely decided I wanted to study uh, what people usually call American pragmatism. I say what people usually call because both of those terms are problematic for people who work in these areas or can be. Perfect. And we could talk about that too. Uh, but yeah, so I was at Rutgers. I wanted to study pragmatism. I had stumbled upon the work of Cornell West and others at the tail end of my time at Morehouse. Turns out Cornell was at Princeton when I was there. So I rode down Route One to take seminars with Cornell and in between seminars with Jerry Fodor. And uh, that was the beginning of my philosophical career.
0: Oh, that's that's very uh, it's unusual. I mean, and it and it, it's shown in your in the book, um, the way you sort of go between, you know, you're sort of crossing different different academic cultures in a very in a very helpful way. Um so let me it's in the in the introduction i mean you you kind of you know you say this is you know one of the one of the things that I want to do here is to is to make these themes and and concepts available to a wider range of analytic philosophers because you know precisely because from your own experience you see that um analytic philosophy wasn't or hasn't been. Uh, interested in the questions uh, that you were interested in and and yet you still felt or feel that the the tools the methods of analytic philosophy um, would somehow be would be valuable to to have in in these arenas so could you could you say something about what you think um, your kind of training can bring to the table in the discussion and I should mention i mean there it's uh would you, would you agree also that, that, you know, things have changed since, since you were being trained and there was, you know, as you mentioned, no, no attention whatsoever to these questions? I mean, that, that, that from the outside, since I don't work in, in these areas, um, that seems to have changed somewhat, but, but that's my outsider's perspective.
1: No, that's surely right. Things have changed considerably, and I'm happy to acknowledge that. Uh, saying that, however, doesn't mean there's not more work to do. We have an analog to this in our broader political, uh, lives, right? Uh, we have first African American president, if you consent to describe him in this way, but there are all sorts of things that are still very disturbing. And so, right. Uh, yes, things have changed a great deal. Uh, this is, it is a better time than it has ever been, uh, before to be a professional philosopher interested in, uh, very broadly speaking issues in African American Thought, or politics, or culture. Uh, this is the best time. This is the best of times in certain ways. That said, there's still work to do, and we can talk some more about that. So, to to your uh, first question, yeah. what is what does it that you think uh, analytic philosophy can bring? Uh, I, I should be clear about this, and I hope I was clear in the book. I may not have been uh, for reasons I'll speak to. Um, I'm I'm not always. Confident so the the burden of the enterprise was not to bring analytic philosophy's resources was not principally to bring analytic philosophy's resources to bear on these problems mm-hmm. uh, that 's a happy side effect uh, uh, maybe the way to say it is to add a third agenda item to the agenda you offered me at the beginning, right You described the book as doing a couple of things taking up a certain set of issues but also Uh, Bringing analytic philosophy's resources to bear On this stuff Mm -hmm. Um, a third thing it was doing Though was was therapeutic Right it was an exercise of Self and self excavation for me Mm -hmm. Uh, Given the history I just Described to you uh, My introduction to professional Philosophy was not a a wholly uh, A seamlessly pleasant experience right It was schizophrenic in certain ways it was Mm -hmm. Difficult it was uh, I was and in some ways remain ambivalent about professional philosophy as an enterprise devoted to the life of the mind in certain respects, focused on certain kinds of problems. And so one of the things this book was meant to do was help me come to grips with the uh, itinerary that had brought me to this point. So one of the things I say in the book is that it's the book that I wish I'd had in grad school. Mm -hmm. And so all of that to say, uh, to reframe the the conversation just a little bit. Mm I'm not always confident analytic philosophy has resources to bring that are that can usefully be brought to bear on these problems. In my my more optimistic moods, I think, <laughs> yeah. But most more than that, what I'm trying to do is provide a point of entry for people who were trained the way I was trained uh, so that we can get into conversations. People in other fields are already having about these issues. And then maybe we'll see if we have something to bring to bear. But more than that, it was for people who, again, who were trained like me. Uh, to try to begin to think productively about these issues, does that make sense?
0: Yes, it does. Yeah, fair enough. Um, so let's—I mean, let's get to the to the meat of the book, so to speak—the the actual issues that that you excavate and consider. Um, uh, you start with, uh, understandably, and in, in nice analytic tradition, actually, um, uh, consideration of the concepts and basic ideas uh, of black aesthetics you know starting with the idea of of blackness and 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 what you call racialism um, as distinct from just racism um, and then uh, aesthetics uh, in this in this case uh, another phrase you use also is is expressive culture so could you um lay out for us um uh what this broad topic of of black aesthetics is
1: Sure, I'll, I'll give it a shot. Um, so, um, maybe the place to begin is with the, uh, well, this place to begin. Um, in the last 40 years, uh, it has become more and more common for in the academy, in the English speaking academy in particular, it's become more and more common for people to help themselves to. Uh, the language of critical race theory or to that description or self-description right Uh, this is a a way of speaking a locution that uh, we borrowed from our friends in legal theory and legal studies it meant a very particular thing there it means broader things in other fields people in sociology and history and literary studies and philosophy now uh, can be heard saying routinely that we do critical race theory Uh, very broadly speaking what this means for many of us is just that uh, we're trying to understand how race works and how we can responsibly and productively contribute to conversations about race and racialization and racial politics uh, in ways that do not fall back into sort of old problematic and obviously problematic ways of thinking about race. Think about the Ku Klux Klan and 19th century and Hitler and all that business. Right. We don't want to do that because there's a whole tradition of race theory, multiple traditions of race theory that are not critical in this way. We mean to do race theory in a way that is critical of that and gives us the resources to intervene productively in um, attempts to advance the cause of human freedom or well-being or something like that. Right. So very broadly speaking, there is that. Uh, scholarly and intellectual enterprise Mm -hmm. already in play.
0: Okay, so, um, yeah, go ahead, sorry.
1: So the question then is, what kinds of questions constitute that enterprise? Mm -hmm. For many people, for quite a long time in philosophy, all that critical race theory meant was a certain kind of metaphysical inquiry. Right. Or a certain kind of inquiry and philosophy of language. Do races exist? If so, what are we talking about when we use the word race and when we use words like Caucasian and Asian and so forth? Right. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things I wanted to do was remind us all that there are lots of other things at stake. uh, And some of the obvious things have to do with ethics and politics, but some of the less obvious things have to do with the aesthetic dimensions of our lives. And so that's the first one. That leads me to one of the other questions you've asked me, right? What does it mean to talk about expressive culture in this context? Well, one of the things it means is that I'm going to be concerned with a broader sense of the aesthetic than we are sometimes um, encouraged to use. Sometimes when we talk about the aesthetic, especially for people who are trained uh, to some degree the way I was, that is to say, in Anglo-American or Anglo-Analytic traditions of philosophical aesthetics, to speak of the aesthetic, the aesthetic just is to speak of the philosophy of art. Mm -hmm. Uh, we do that. We, we conflate these things much less often than we used to, but it it was, it is still to some degree a standing temptation. Uh, there are thriving research projects in, among other things, everyday aesthetics or body aesthetics now, even in analytic philosophy. But even so, um, I want to be clear about this and, and begin to forge that sort of point of entry that I described earlier. If you look at the work people are doing in cultural theory and other fields outside philosophy, they routinely help themselves the language of expressive culture. And this is a way of talking about what philosophers like John Dewey would have just used the notion of the aesthetic to talk about, which is to say uh, the dimensions of our dimensions of human experience that are not devoted to sort of instrumental engagements with our environments right mm-hmm. so when you look at a stop sign and you read it to see if it, what it's telling you to do that's an instrumental engagement when you look at the stop sign to see its colors and its shapes and that sort of thing that's an aesthetic engagement or at least potentially an aesthetic engagement mm-hmm. and so i wanted to make clear that i had a broader sense of the aesthetic in mind i'm not just going to be talking about works of art and the sort of mo- high modern sense of art uh and i wanted to do it in a way that signaled an openness to these other traditions of inquiry in american studies for example in literary studies
0: okay good um so uh let me let's get to the the first topic um that you 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 divide the book into a into a number of different specific uh, topics within black aesthetics um and the first one is uh very potent um idea of black invisibility um and as you note uh you know for for a lot of people this was this is is part of uh a sort of a, a more or less standard i don't know how standard uh, education where everybody at some point has to read um uh invisible man right um and uh you ins- instead you you put it in more contemporary terms in terms of the casting of uh uh zoe saldana who is uh, she's you know basically Dominican Puerto Rican or something um, uh, as Nina Simone in a in a in a biopic and um, so can you can you uh, explain your uh, your analysis of, of black invisibility and, and perhaps use, using that uh, that case to illustrate the four different um, senses of invisibility that you that you identify.
1: Sure. Uh, Let me frame the project a little bit before I do that. You gave me an opportunity to do that earlier, and I've ranted on about some other stuff. So let me say just a word about the framing. Uh, It is not uncommon if one looks back through uh, the African-American intellectual tradition or the African-intellectual tradition to find that when people talk about black aesthetics, they often have in mind a very particular thing. And I mean something broader than that. People often have in mind when they use this language. Uh, a very particular kind of solidaristic or nationalist project. So to talk about black aesthetics in this context is to engage in an act in a kind of prescriptive activity. It's to talk about the kinds of things that all and only black people can or should do. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, That's not what I'm doing. I'm trying to engage the tradition that gives us judgments and claims like this and treat it as a subject of philosophical inquiry. And so I said earlier that in my better moods, I think, you know, analytic philosophy can contribute to this work. If it contributes anything, analytic philosophy can contribute this, because whatever else we do as analytic philosophers, we're good at when we are paying attention, we're good at digging into sort of the basics of things, figuring out what things mean, what we mean when we use a certain kind of language, getting clear on what the conceptual possibilities are, conceptual options. And so that's the spirit in which I engage this. And so I wanted to say that things like this, that, Often when we hear people talk about the black aesthetic where or when we encounter that language, we're looking at in the English language in particular. We're looking at stuff from the mid 60s, early 70s, black arts movement. And many times that's engaged with a very particular kind of nationalist project. I want to look at a tradition that environs that particular moment Mm -hmm. and broadens it to include people who were in conversation with Amir Baraka and Sonia Sanchez and those kinds of folks. Right. So for me to talk about the black aesthetic is not to talk about a set of norms that governs the production of art by and for black people. It's to talk about traditions of inquiry and expression and criticism that allow us to engage certain kinds of debates about the expressive cultures of black people in their communities. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that's the broad frame and that's where the idea of invisibility fits in along with lots of other things. What I want to claim is that if you look at the tradition, And I speak of the tradition that's a little misleading because there are multiple traditions in multiple locations, settings and times. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if we take certain traditions of criticism, expression, inquiry into black expressive culture seriously, we'll see that over a long period of time, certain kinds of questions keep coming back. Some of those questions have to do with authenticity, right? What authentically counts as an instance of black art, right? right? Some of those have to do with politics, right? What? kind of relationship do we have between ethics and, um, expression, right? Some of those questions have to do with invisibility and this is where we get Ralph Ellison. So I I wanted to start there because in certain ways for certain people, that's the most obvious point of entry, Mm -hmm. um, It may not be the case anymore that everyone still has to read Invisible Man. I'll find out soon. My son is 13 years old. He'll be Mm -hmm. going to high school soon. But it used to be the case since 1952, almost, when the book came out. Uh, Everybody had to read this because we thought it was, we as a society thought this was a great revelatory moment, right? This was a window onto something called the Black Experience, and we needed to learn from this and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And so that was a useful point of entry for that reason, but also because, the idea of invisibility pervades these traditions in a variety of ways. We find it in a lot of places. We find it in Toni Morrison. We find it in Elaine Locke in a certain way. We find it in all kinds of figures going way back. And so uh, there, when we find it in Ellison, it's rich and deep in ways that it takes him the whole novel to unpack. Uh, when we find it in, for example, Michelle Wallace, contemporary art critic and cultural critic, um, it functions in ways that overlap with Ellison, but are slightly different. And we can tease out a handful of of principal or main preoccupations that appear when people talk about invisibility. Uh, the easiest way to start is just where Ellison starts at the beginning of Invisible Man. There's this wonderful encounter the narrator runs into. Um, the black narrator runs into a white guy on the street and he says, you know, it's the, the, the person he runs into acts as if he has been attacked by some mystical creature, right? (laughs) That couldn't understand what's going on because he, I realize, the narrator says he didn't see me. He couldn't see me. Right. Um, and, and that's not, he goes on to make very clear, not a matter of the failure of his, you know, uh, faculties of, of visual perception. It's a kind of ideological blindness, right, that he can't register the presence of black folks in the space that he as a white person feels he has some claim to. right? right.
0: Um,
1: and so in the first in the first instance, it's it invisibility can be just a matter of uh, not registering the presence of black people in settings where they are manifestly apparent. Uh, but on, but there are other levels to it, right? So closely following on the heels of that, there are um, one might have worries about a failure to register the perceptions that Black people have, the perspectives that Black people take onto our shared social spaces and social transactions. Um, you see both of these in play in the example I use in the book um, from the film Far From Heaven, the Todd Haynes film. There's this wonderful scene early or about a third of the way through the film. Uh, set in the fifties um, a number of white characters in Connecticut are having a dinner party and they're being served by black uh, wait staff. and they're talking about the black people, like black people aren't there and mm-hmm. black people aren't listening to them. And it's clear the black people are not present in a certain way, which is one level of invisibility, but it's clear also that their perspectives on this social interaction don't matter. So that's a kind of second level of invisibility and there are others. So.
0: Okay. So, um, uh, so one of the i mean you've you've mentioned uh hopeful moments um in uh previously in this in this interview, and you know one of the things that I was thinking as i as I read the chapter on invisibility was um you know this idea that our uh as you put it you know mo- modern visual experiences is, is kind of steeped in what we 're prepared to see and um that 's actually uh you know a general sort of condition. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, from just, uh, you know, the latest sorts of theories of how our minds and and brains function Mm -hmm. is this sort of the the distinction between sort of just visual, that visual experience itself is always, uh, in some sense, you know, cognitively penetrated, to use an old phrase Mm -hmm. that might be a little bit misleading, but the basic idea is that, you know, we always, to some extent, um, and that extent we don't yet know. Uh we always see kind of what we expect. Mm-hmm. Um and of course this you know comes out in sometimes in tragic ways um and sometimes in you know just ordinary ways. Um but it's it's kind of always there because that's just the way our visual systems work. Mm-hmm. Um and I, I was just wondering. I mean, how do you um you know, is that is that a is, is that a despairing thing or is that just, you know, this is something that we can we can change as far as the project the the overall project of 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 um you know changing this um or improving this condition of of racialism
1: well that's that's a great question i don't think it's cause for despair. I think it sets the uh agenda for us in certain ways right um so, I mean, it's it's what Stanley Cavell would invite us to call a condition of human finitude. It just is part of what we have to deal with as humans if we want to manage our experiences mm-hmm. um, intelligently and productively. And so then the question is, how do we do that? And this, again, is one of the things that um, encouraged me to turn to art and the aesthetic, right? One of the claims that one often hears made for the arts and not quite in this language typically is that, uh i mean dewey uses this language but other people tend not to because dewey's language is as uh, oliver wendell holmes once said like the clanking of subway trains right so um but uh, one often hears claimed for the arts that they are a resource for the retraining of our immediate perceptions right so one of the virtues of art is that it helps us see things that we would see in routine and habitual ways it helps us see those things differently it invites us to reorient our orient, reorient ourselves to the world that we use our uh, perceptual powers to navigate. And so, and this has often been the claim for black art and black aesthetics, right? One of the burdens of the black aesthetic for the figures I mentioned earlier in the mid-60s and early 70s was to give us the cultural resources to reorient black folks' perceptions of themselves and their prospects and their history and their legacies. And this was pursuant to the work that people like Steve Biko would assign, say, the black consciousness movement, right, to – and, you know, again, this is a long tradition. It comes in many different flavors and forms manifest differently in different settings you can find people talking this way in the late 19th century in the us and the uk uh, but part of the burden of black expressive culture is to give black folks the resources to take pride in themselves in an anti-black world right mm-hmm. and so yes it is the case that uh, our perceptions are always cognitively mediated this is uh, this is one of the incidentally this is one of the things that leads me to Uh, The more generous or optimistic moods I described earlier, Mm -hmm. this is one of the points at which sort of continental inspired cultural theory now converges with analytic theory in various ways. Uh, This same insight is at the heart of visual culture studies, which grows out of in certain of its forms, grows out of a certain way of engaging the work of art history, in particular in connection with modernist art. Uh, But yes it is the case that our perceptions are mediated by all sorts of things. Then the question is how do we retrain ourselves so that we can deal with those things okay. and art can be a resource for that.
0: Uh-huh. Okay. Um, so I did mention met, I mentioned before the controversial, uh, casting of, of Zoe Saldana as, mm-hmm. as Nina, uh, Simone. Um, could you, could you s- explain a bit about what that, why that was so controversial and, and what it reveals about, about the, at least one aspect of blessed black aesthetic.
1: Sure. Um, so I, I, I can't ever recall if this film has come out yet because I think it's meant to come out this fall. If it hasn't already, um, it was long delayed for reasons. Some mysterious reasons, some straightforward reasons. Some of them seem to have to do with just letting the furor die down. Mm. Uh, but uh, Zoe Saldana was cast as Nina Simone, and Nina Simone is a, is a cultural icon for certain folks, uh, for s- uh, people who have adopted a certain kind of orientation to uh, black culture and black politics and black history. Uh, Nina Simone is often described as a jazz singer. That's a little misleading and a little constraining. Um, she was a performer who used her uh, um quite profound, quite remarkable skills as a musician to do the work that many artists aspire to do, to make their their culture work uh, more broadly, have broader political resonance. And so over the course of her career, she sort of took on board certain ways of rethinking Blackness and make, putting that at the heart of her performance and composition work. And part of that had to do with the way she styled her body and her her sartorial comportment and the way she presented herself for visual consumption in public during her performances and at other times. And given that, and given the fact that uh, racialization in the modern world is an essentially uh, somatic enterprise, it has to do with the way our bodies are perceived in certain ways, Uh, it is not inconsequential that Nina Simone was a dark-skinned woman who did not have sort of traditionally The features that uh, on what, again, Sonia Sanchez and other folks would have called the white aesthetic, we would traditionally or pre theoretically think of as attractive. Right? Mm -hmm. Nina Simone had a very distinctive look and it was very distinctively black. Right? Mm -hmm. And given all of that, to cast as Nina Simone a woman who is fairly light skinned and does not look anything like Nina Simone and does not more than that. have a physical appearance that connects in any sort of obvious way to the kinds of debates and arguments around colorism and, and color prejudice that Nina Simone's body would allow us and invite us to have. That struck many people as a problem added to which the film completely seems to have dropped out the political dimensions of Nina Simone's actual life and biography and ideas, but that's another story. Mm -hmm. So there was a a huge uproar in social media and in blogs and, on. Uh, magazines and cultural criticism and uh, Zoe Saldana responded to it in the way that Hollywood figures often do which is basically to say not very much I'm just an actor it doesn't mean anything people are cast in these ways all all the time doesn't mean anything and the response was often well no it does mean something and and the fact that we have to explain that it means something and what it means is part of the problem and to me, I, so I use that case as evidence of a variety of things. Some of them had to do with the rich connections between expressive culture and performance culture and performance practices and politics and in particular racial politics. But it's also an indication of, of the way some of these modes of invisibility sort of converge on this one figure, right? Mm-hmm. The fact of, of, of Nina Simone's body becomes irrelevant, right? Her body becomes invisible, right? Right. The, the, that surrounds this, the orientation that uh, Black folks who are interested in these issues have to this phenomenon, right? That perspective becomes invisible, right? And so on.
0: Right. I mean, it's and in a sense it's ironic, uh, also, because um, presumably the reason that they're doing the the making the film to begin with is is because she had this uh, important political dimension. Um, well, I
1: would have thought so, right? But yeah. Then it's- yeah, there's some other stuff at work
0: right um well you you've brought up two uh, two really really important issues that you discuss in in subsequent chapters um one is this uh, relationship between uh, expressive culture and and politics um, and then is there's this other idea of, of black beauty and um, a very conflicted relationship, uh, between black bodies and, you know, the norms of, of beauty and, and relationships and things like that. So I want to get to both of those things. Um, so let me, let me just, let's just start with the politics since, since you mentioned that most, um, prominently, um, although not exclusively with, in regard to, to Nina Simone, um, uh, one of the things you discuss is, um, you know, how autonomous the, the expressive culture should be from or, or should or, or can be from its from its the political milieu from which it, it arises. Um, and then and then the question of, uh, you know, can an expressive culture that that arises from a poli- political context, um, can it somehow transcend that in some way um, or, or even should it? Um, So can you can you discuss the your your analysis of the relationship there between expressive culture and and politics?
1: Sure, I'd be happy to. So one thing to do is to to reset the frame just to be clear. I find I have to be clear about these things, because when people hear me say words like black aesthetic, it's very easy to assume I mean the thing I've explicitly said I don't mean. Mm -hmm. So I just like to remind folks Uh, when I what I'm talking about is a set of arguments. That have routinely found their way into uh, certain forms for intellectual exchange and argument around issues of racial politics in relation to black folks in their communities. Mm -hmm. And this is not a prescriptive enterprise telling a story about the norms that must govern black cultural production. Uh, It's an act what I describe in the first chapter of the book as an act of assembly. I'm assembling the black aesthetic tradition out of these sort of problem spaces or recurring arguments and debates that we find throughout the tradition. Mm -hmm. One of those debates had to do with politics. And like many other things in this tradition, I mean to assemble, uh, it intersects with overlaps with dovetails with arguments we find outside the black aesthetic tradition. So the claim is not that these are questions one finds only here. Mm -hmm. Um, And that would be a, well, there are complexities there we can explore about the relationship between black expressive culture and other kinds of cultures. We can talk about that later. Uh, but this is a question that we find in other settings. What I wanted to do was try to tease out uh, the distinctive orientation to that question, if there is one, that one finds in uh, black expressive traditions and traditions of black aesthetic reflection and criticism and engagement. And so the basic question, of course, is is the one you identify. Uh, what is What role can um, aesthetic practice play in ethical life? There are different ways to cash out that question. There are different levels at which we can raise the question. The one easy way is to raise it the way Bayard Rustin, the great activist and organizer and cultural critic from uh, African-American politics and pacifist politics, U.S. pacifist politics in the middle of the 20th century, put it at the end of the civil what many of us think of as the end of the civil rights movement bayard rustin claimed okay that was nice right it was nice we had harry belafonte and nina simone and all those folks marching with us and singing at the rallies and so forth Mm -hmm. but now it's time for politics right and so that that cultural politics stuff that's good that's done now let's do real politics let's do voting and congress congressional races and that kind of stuff and so for him there's a very clear least at this moment the way i've rendered it there Mm -hmm. was a very clear divide between the work of Aesthetic practice and the work of politics. But many people think very differently about this. The canonical case for me is W.E.B. Du Bois, a towering figure of um, Africana intellectual life, the brook of fire through which all people who want to think about these things must pass, cornell West used to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, wrote a famous piece, gave a famous um, address at an NAACP event in, uh, in 1926 called Criteria of Negro Art, at the conclusion of which he argues. That all art is propaganda and ever must be. So if we want to pretend that black art can be divorced from politics, we're deluding ourselves because all art is about politics. And so that sort of sets up the frame. That sort of frames the the problem space or the debate. And what I claim in the chapter in the book is that Du Bois' view pretty much holds uh, or wins the day in in and among people who want to talk about, take the idea of black aesthetics seriously or black art seriously. Uh, The whole point of introducing a category of something you might call black art is usually to have it do or to recognize a certain kind of political work. Uh, That seems to be the way most, the the weight of opinion goes in these traditions. Mm -hmm. But as I say, this dovetails with arguments we have outside these traditions. The way I rendered it, Connects very closely to arguments in critical theory, Adorno style, for example, critical theory or in Marxian theory and politics. Uh, you know, one way to render this problem, one version of the problem, is to say, well, look, cultural practice always arises from a very particular kind of social political context, and that context sets limits, right? It frames the horizon. You can't. It's very difficult to imagine how you would go beyond, right? The ideological possibilities that are inherent in any particular social political setting in your art. So the art can only be conservative. Is the way one kind of argument like that goes. I did not aspire to settle those arguments, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, those are, one might say above my pay grade, right? That's the kind of stuff philosophers have been arguing about anyway. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to locate this problem space in the black aesthetic tradition relative to that, those standing arguments. Another one of these is the argument of moralism and ethicism in um, analytic philosophical aesthetics. Right. I don't mean, to settle those broader debates, I wanted to locate the black aesthetic tradition relative to those and to suggest, what how that comes out for people in the black aesthetic tradition
0: right um is it i mean you know one of the things that i was thinking about because i am familiar with the the analytic aesthetic tradition you know barris gout and noel carroll Mm. among the people that you you discuss in the book uh, um and particularly gout's arguments about um the 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 ethical being built into uh the aesthetic that that ethical value is always is always there to some extent and i've always you know i've always you know tried to think of counterexamples as an analytic philosopher uh you know to see well is is that really true i mean where do you find the the politics in i don't know um you know somebody like um um, Monet, you know, um, you know, lilies or or something like that. Um, uh, is it is it as all encompassing as 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 the all seems to to say? Or can can can't there be? Is it is it not possible for there to be uh, an art that is uh, that is not political? Um, or would that just simply be by definition not you know? black art, so to speak?
1: Oh, I think it's possible. I think it depends on what you mean by political and not political, right? So, you know, think of Tennessee Williams and, you know, people inviting Tennessee Williams to do more political work in response to which he says, oh, I thought all my stuff was political because he had a different sense of what counts as politics, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, So for him and so for many people, uh, thinking responsibly and productively about the human condition. Is a political act, right? If you invite people to take seriously certain kinds of constraints on their abilities to imagine a productive life, plan, right? right, That's a political act. And so we'd have to talk about what it means, what it means for something to count as political or not political. And that's probably not something we can do right now. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll tell you instead what how I think of these things. I, I introduce the the. Moralism separatism debate from analytic philosophical aesthetics as a way of working through some things in this chapter I'm not at all content with that way of setting up the issues and one day I'll write more about this squarely in the context of philosophical aesthetics apart from the black intellectual tradition mm-hmm. um, I'm as I mentioned, I, I went to Rutgers and decided I wanted to Study Dewey, which was a crazy thing to do uh, But but that's kind of still where I am and so my orientation to a lot of this stuff is that one of the things philosophers often do is we set ourselves up with blinders to start with, and then we figure out how to connect the things we can see to the things that the blinders prevent us from seeing. <laughs> and what we might want to do instead is figure out how to set the blinders aside and, and redescribe right what William James would have called the buzzing, blooming confusion of the experience we're trying to make sense of. Mm-hmm. And so the kind of thing I'm inclined to say is that, you know, experience is experience, and we find the language to, this is a, a straightforwardly Deweyan way of thinking of this, you can find analogs to this in other traditions, phenomenological tradition, for example, most clearly. Uh, but the work of language, the work of inquiry, the work of reflection is to figure out how to make sense of a bunch of stuff that doesn't come with its distinctions preloaded into it. Mm-hmm. And whether the distinction we introduce will be productive in a particular context is a question to ask in that context. And has to do with the connections we make to other kinds of questions we might ask. And so all that to say, to use your example, um, I can probably tell you a story about an aesthetic experience that I have in the presence of a painting of a landscape. Right. And I can tell a story about how that is not political in a sort of narrow sense of political. But then a certain kind of art historian might invite me to tell a story about how it is that I have this experience of leisure and where that allows me to pretend that I am not inhabiting a political space at that moment, and where the leisure came from, from the art for, for the artist to make this work, mm-hmm. and what the alternatives were, and what kind of thing is happening in that social formation at that moment. And then it's harder to tell a story, right? I'd have to cash out all of those blank checks I just wrote, but mm-hmm. then it's harder to tell a story about what is and what isn't political. So for me, all of this is really complicated. The the Moralism, separatism, stuff gives us some traction for engaging in particular settings as we ask these questions. But I'm very uneasy about asking them very broadly about you know the possibility of a non-political art.
0: Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Um, well, speaking of complexity, I mean one of the in one of the chapters you you uh, you you look at the 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 uh, unbelievable. Com- complexity really of the relationship between um uh well the the title of this this particular chapter is is starts dark lovely yet and and uh you know because it's it's as you as you illustrate it's it's taken from a biblical passage but uh it, but then kind of transforms itself uh into uh a more acceptable formulation uh once um in this particular in this particular case you can be both dark and lovely rather than dark yet lovely and it, the 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 illustration of course that the the way this is this sort of conflict between um sort of finding the black body uh both something desirous and yet at the some t- at the same time um, something that uh is um, in some sense hated. Um you, you adopt the term you use first of all the relationship between Thomas Jefferson and, and Sally Hemings as a as a um, as a paradigm example of this of this extreme conflict. Um, you also introduce uh a, the concept of what you call um sarc aesthetic negrophobia or sarc aesthetics and then the negrophobia gets attached to that. Um, can you can you explain this sarcas and this very conflicted relationship, at least at least in, in American culture broadly, um, between the you know the two very different coinciding ways of approaching or not approaching um, the black body.
1: Sure. Well, before I explain, I should apologize to all lovers of the English language everywhere for introducing such horrible (laughs) neologisms. Um, I blame Richard Schusterman, and I'll tell you why. Um, Richard Schusterman is known to many for a a number of wonderful contributions to uh, philosophy over a number of years. Uh, Most recently, many people know him as one of the architects of a field of study called somaesthetics. And the idea of somaesthetics, one idea is that it's meant to be um, an enterprise that invites us and gives us the resources to take uh, bodily experience seriously. And for him, that means not just the appearance of human bodies, but the experience of the body, the moving, living, breathing body, right? And so there are analyses in the somaesthetic, uh, one might, in the spirit of somaesthetics, one might offer an analysis of... Uh, the phenomenology of the gate, right, the way one walks and what that means and that sort of thing. Um, so Richard introduced this, invited a number of people to take seriously this way of thinking and has launched a kind of uh, robust and thriving research program. It's really quite wonderful. I wanted to push in a slightly different direction. So I wanted to say, well, look, Richard Schusterman has invited us to take seriously one way of thinking about a broader field of study that we might call somatic aesthetics, and Richard calls it that sometimes. Uh, so the somatic, so somatic aesthetics is about not just the lived experience of the body, as some aesthetics is meant to be, but also about the representational dimension or the body as it appears for per- the perception of a third party, right? That Needed a different name than soma aesthetics. And so I went back to the Greek as Richard did for soma aesthetics and where soma is about the soul, right? Uh, the sark is about the body. And so that's where that came from. I was trying to distinguish from Richard's project, but that all probably should have stayed in my drawer and it didn't have to get in the manuscript. But there <laughs> it is, and I am now responsible for it. So that's the apology and that's the explanation. Uh, This was my way, once again, of building a bridge between the stuff I wanted when I was in grad school and the stuff I had when I was at Morehouse. Morehouse is an historically black all male college. I didn't mention that before. Across the street is Spelman College, an historically black all female college. And you can imagine what that is like for young people uh, who are finding their way as adults. Uh, One of the things that it brought into play for us at the moment I described at the height of a certain kind of resurgent cultural nationalism that was cast in a very bourgeois mode. We could talk about the peculiarity of that. Uh, Was that cultural a sort of superficial cultural politics pervaded the space. And so people thought they could make interesting claims about other people's political commitments and convictions by looking at the clothes they wore or the way they styled their hair or those kinds of things. And so somatic aesthetics was a thing for me then. And I wanted resources to understand it, and I didn't really have it in philosophy. And so this was me trying to get back to that moment and do the work that I wanted to be able to do now. So what does it mean to, what, why is this an issue? What is at stake here for people? Well, one thing that's at stake is that, again, in uh, modern racialism, I should have said this earlier, when I use r- the word racialism, I use it in a slightly idiosyncratic way. Uh, many people following the lead of Anthony Appiah Anthony Appia and others use racialism as a name for a view that ascribes deep traits to people on the that and uh, to human types and does this in a way that links those deep traits to more superficial traits and sometimes we use the language of heritability when we talk about this i don't use racialism that way i use it much in a much more catholic way to describe any view that takes the idea of race seriously Right. So I'm a racialist if I am a Klan member, but I'm also a racialist if I am a critical race theorist of a certain kind. Mm -hmm. So I use it in a very ecumenical way. Um, Modern, the dominant modern modes of racialism were also racist and white supremacist Mm -hmm. and had at their heart judgments about the beauty of human bodies and judgments that connected those judgments of beauty to judgments of ethical and moral worth. And so not only was it the case that people who were descended from Africans Uh, were supposed to be stupider and uh, unable to control their sexual appetites, right? It was also the case, this modern white supremacist, dominant racialist frame invited us to think, it was also the case that these people are uglier, right? So white people are just prettier. You can find this language in Matthew Arnold. You can find it in Kant. You can find it in Hume. You can find it in Thomas Jefferson. And so one of the burdens of liberatory work in Africana traditions and black political traditions has been in the spirit of Steve Biko that I mentioned earlier, the black consciousness movement, to reaffirm for black folks the possibility of esteeming themselves by appeal to the the traits that they have. Right. And so at the heart of black politics has long been a certain kind of somatic aesthetics that was about vindicating, valorizing, celebrating the black body. And so that's what this chapter is about. And you find it from the beginning of the tradition to now. You find it in right in the Nina Simone thing. You find it in... Um, well, the examples I use are there was the um, LeBron James cover of Vogue with Giselle Munchen. Mm. There's the um, sort of peculiar... Valorization of Beyonce now in a way that we wouldn't have seen a number of years ago So this is a very peculiar moment for people who are interested in in somatic aesthetics in connection with these sorts of issues um, And I wanted to sort of dig into those things
0: so um, uh, Yeah, and and along with this the you you talk about the whole Problematic of, of black hair and, and the straightening of black hair because it makes it I guess whiter or something um Well, one of the one of the things that you that I thought was really fascinating was, um, you know, and and to use the the term that you you now kind of like um, are not quite sure you want to use, but um, sarcastic negrophobia. Um,
1: Oh, that sounds horrible.
0: (laughs) Well, but I think the idea itself is fascinating. And the reason is because you 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 try to analyze it in such a way uh, or this this sort of conflict between you know the Jeffersonian you know of which he's a paradigm of of the, both a, you know attraction and yet uh what you call the short circuiting uh, or or phenomenological inhibition what you uh, mm-hmm. you also use that very very uh, good phrase um of intimacy so you know it's as if one starts from you know very ordinarily you know some sort of uh you know physical attraction desire um and then somehow the blackness or something uh prevents the normal the otherwise one would think more or less you know not maybe not standard but um uh the the normal evolution which could happen between that two some sort of level of romantic involvement, or um, esteem, or um, love um, that goes beyond that. So I was just wondering, could you could you explain um, that analysis of the of the negrophobia?
1: Sure. Um, so one of the things I wanted to do in this chapter was give an account of or register. Responsibly, the complexity of the moment we inhabit with regard to these issues. Here's what that means. Uh, it looks like we have achieved, uh, you know, we've entered the promised land in a certain way, right? So, you know, one of the things I say in the chapter is Beyonce's on the cover of GQ now, right? That wouldn't have happened just a generation ago, right? Mm-hmm. Black women were not held to the same standards as white women, and black women did not appear on the covers, routinely anyway, on the covers of mass market publications uh, for reasons that I've pointed to, and so there's a whole subgenre of magazines for people who were not white uh, and so but now it's possible for people like beyonce to appear on magazines for everyone, not just for black people um, what I wanted to do was make clear that that is a kind of progress, but it's not a seamless upward march, right? This takes us back to where we started our conversation, right? That this is a better time than it's ever been to engage these sorts of issues and philosophy. There's still work to do. It's a better time than it's ever been to be a black politician in the United States, but there's still work to do. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to register and capture the complexity of this moment, the ambivalence that's at the heart of this very peculiar dynamic. In the background to all of this, of course, we should say is the argument or the account we should give of the way this orientation to human bodies and to human erotic impulses requires analysis from the perspective of a kind of gender politics, right? That has to happen. But what also I think has to happen, and this is where I started, and this is what makes me a Dewey and also of a certain kind, uh, is a recognition that we are Organisms human beings are organisms and their basic impulses organisms have and one of the burdens we have as humans is to figure out what to do with those Impulses in ways that allow us to live fulfilling and ethical lives, but the impulses are there And so the work has to do with figuring out what to do with them. And that's where this what you described as a kind of evolution right from the initial what Dewey would have called the impulsion of physical attraction into whatever else it is humans think we do now, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, We'd have to tell a story about the history of the evolution of romantic love, the idea of romance as a thing, right? That's all very complicated. I'm going to write a big blank check for that and keep moving. But something, we think we do something that owls don't do, right? We think we do something that snakes don't do, mm-hmm. right? We go beyond the the impulse that leads to mating, and Layer it with a bunch of other things. There are animals that do that There are other animals that do some of that But we do it in a way that requires poetry and flowers and wine and all of that And so there, we, we need a story about that and The story has to be racialized for the reasons that I've talked about right? So I gave you the sort of canned story of white supremacist anti blackness right anti black aesthetics in white supremacist context right, we thought black bodies were ugly, mm-hmm. but Thomas Jefferson had this relationship with this woman. Right. But Strom Thurmond had this relationship, if you call it that, with these black women. Right. And so there's a very complicated thing that happens, as we know, of course, from decades and centuries of feminist thought and theory. Right. Around sex and gender and power. But all of that I wanted to suggest while holding open. The possibility of a need for that deeper analysis. Right. All of that is also bound up with a certain kind of aesthetic engagement. And that engagement has at its heart a kind of tension, a kind of ambivalence between attraction and repulsion. So there's that wonderful moment in in Jefferson's notes from the state of Virginia. Right. Where he Outs himself, essentially, he says, right, the whole business of the commerce between master and slave is an opportunity for the exercise of the most boisterous passions. And he's confessing in a way, Mm -hmm. right, to having this turmoil that he doesn't know how to deal with, right? This is the urtext for me in a certain way, right? So the fact that we have Beyonce on the cover of these magazines is nice, right? Mm -hmm. But it's still consistent with a certain way of demonizing black bodies, right? Of demonizing Mm -hmm. black persons, right? And so we have to think very hard about how that works. We have a black first lady, right? So all of this in a certain way orbits around ideas of femininity and feminine beauty, right? That get crystallized in certain ways around the notions of the notion of the lady. And the paradigm case of that is the first lady. And in deference to the connotations and overtones of that idea when Michelle Obama entered the the White House, you had people on social media and other places saying, "Like, I can't imagine that person as my first lady. She doesn't look like a first lady. And, you know, com- comments from congressmen and others talking about her body in ways you wouldn't talk about Nancy Reagan's body. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's there are very peculiar things happening and we can't understand them unless we take seriously not just the progress that allows White men to leer at black women the way they leader at white women on the cover of Playboy or Vogue or whatever or not Vogue, excuse me, GQ or whatever it is. But along with this progress, a kind of tension or ambivalence that allows us still to demonize black folks, to think of black women just as sex objects in the way something like the way that the slave masters used to. Right.
0: Yeah. Um okay so um you know I I'm afraid that we're're we're, we're running out of time and we haven't even gotten to your discussions of of authenticity um, and um, uh, and black music uh, in the very last chapter
1: um oh good heavens that means I've talked too much
0: uh no I mean it it means it's it's been a fascinating interview um but um so let me just uh, you know rather than start us on um, I'll just I'll just You know, invite the readers to actually um, or the the listeners to actually, uh, you know, delve into the book themselves um, to to look at what you have to say about those really important topics. Um, May I offer uh, a warning to the reader? Sorry?
1: May I offer a warning to the reader? Yes, please. The chapter on authenticity will not solve any problems. Here's why I say that. So there's there's work on appropriation and authenticity. These are live concerns, live questions for people nowadays, right? You have okay. uh, white rappers performing yes. in what we think of as black traditions. That's right. We want answers. We want to be able to say clearly, you shouldn't do that, or you can't do that, or that's wrong, or that's bad. I don't have answers like that. What I have instead is a set of resources that allow us to interrogate the question to see what kind of question it really is. And I end up with a kind of endorsing a kind of existentialist ethic, which requires a discipline of self excavation, right? What do I want from this aesthetic exchange or transaction, such that I feel the need to say you can and shouldn't do that, and so forth? So there aren't answers; there are provocations.
0: Okay, very good. Um, so you you close the book um, with well, you've you've mentioned a number of times, you know, a number of blank checks, um, but you also you know say explicitly in in the at the end of the book that uh, there is a next installment. So, to speak. so I'd like to end usually with a question about what what comes next for you. And so um, in particular, I mean, what what are if this is a first installment, what's what's the next step for you?
1: I think the next step is picking up where I just left off. There, there's more to say about the problematic of cultural appropriation. Um, I think it is important to realize it's very hard to draw bright lines. It's very hard to give people the resources for a kind of easy moralistic critique, right? It, we, it's very hard to say just flatly Iggy Azalea is evil for, you know, doing whatever she's doing. We can say she's not very good at it, but you know, perfect. whatever else say, that's harder. That said, it is useful to have some principles, some guidelines that allow us to inhabit these moments intelligently and productively. So it's one thing to say, that we as in, each of us as an individual ethical agent has to interrogate himself or herself to understand what's at work in this impulse to be able to the, the desire to that generates the de- desire to pass judgment in this way. But there's also some value in moving from the a, a study of the individual ethical agent to a study of the, the the resources for productive community engagement and to give us the resources to have productive conversations around when and how people from one tradition or who might seem to have some kind of claim on one tradition, when and how they can move to another tradition and borrow from it responsibly. And so what does that look like? How do we talk about that? That's a kind of ethical enterprise and project that's distinct from the work of self-excavation. Both are necessary, but it's useful to have some guidance in the second space, and I want to do some of that work.
0: Okay, very good. Um, well, I, I look forward to, to reading that and, and perhaps even talking about it again. Um, well,
1: okay, welcome that opportunity.
0: So, but for the for the time being, I think I think we have to, to end this particular conversation. Um, so, I want to thank you again for, for taking the time from your busy day to uh, to talk about your your new book, and I wish you luck with the um, with the 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 blank checks.
1: Uh, well, it's my great pleasure to do this. Thank you for the opportunity.
0: You've been listening to my interview with Paul C. Taylor, Associate Dean of Undergraduate Studies and Associate Professor of Philosophy and African-American Studies at Penn State University. We've been talking about his new book, Black is Beautiful, A Philosophy of Black Aesthetics, which is just out from Wiley Blackwell. This is New Books and Philosophy. I'm Carrie Figdor. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this podcast, and thank you for listening.